The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. We're joined、yeah. by Gordon Kennedy. He's a songwriter, musician, record producer. He's worked with everyone from Peter Frampton, Garth Brooks, Reba McIntyre has covered his songs, Faith Hill. A lot of you may know the song that he co wrote that was recorded by Eric Clapton, Change the World. And I don't know if ever on this show have I had someone who was the son of one of the guests and the brother of another. <laughs> Yeah, we're moving a wide path here in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for joining us, Gordon. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much. And I, I, I do want to correct one thing. Reba has not recorded one of my songs. She actually did record one of our youngest brother, Shelby's songs. He co wrote with Philip White called I'm a Survivor. I actually played on her first few albums that she did back when she was signed to Mercury and had.、Uh, Was fortunate enough to play on her first top five single and her first number one single. So that was back when I was a student at Belmont College. And so that's my relationship to her. Okay. Well, just coming from that kind of background, what was that like being the son of Jerry Kennedy, the guitar and record producing legend? Yeah. It was,、um, it was both. The greatest and scariest thing in the world, the greatest that I was exposed to all this unbelievably great music from the earliest childhood memories, you know, and, and also the fact that I, when I think back on it, I think about the fact that my first record player was a Seaberg 100 jukebox that my dad had down in our basement where we lived in Gillettesville, Tennessee. And so I would, he taught me, you know, how to, Turn the jukebox on and punch the letters and the numbers and, and just cue up these 45s. And so there was everything on there from, you know, Willie and the Hand Jive instrumentals that he had done for Mercury to artists that he, were, he was producing for Mercury, Roger Miller. There would also be like、uh, Buster Brown's Fannie Mae. So there was a variety of things on there that, you know, would impact me as a young kid sitting on the floor in front of that thing. And And then, of course, being surrounded by the guitars that he was carrying to and from the sessions and, and、uh, an upright piano on the, on the wall in the same room. So, all this stuff, you could sit in the middle of the floor and be surrounded by those things I just mentioned. And so, I was sort of immersed or baptized into that from my earliest childhood memories. And so, it was all great in the fact that, you know, if you couple that with the fact he was bringing home seven and a half. IPS, you know, the little、uh, reel to reel tapes of stuff he'd produced that day with either Roger or even Jerry Lee Lewis, Statler Brothers at some point. All this, our family would sit around and listen to what they had done in the studio that day. You know, it was all wonderful until I started thinking, I want to do this too. And at the point where I got serious about it, that's when it, it, I realized, okay, now my dad is. Gone from an influence to this shadow that he's casting, and, and can I, you know, survive and, and make it in and you know, trying on those,、uh, in those huge shoes that my dad, you know, was wearing? You know, did I really want to try and think that I had any business doing this? So at some point, it became a little bit intimidating. And your father said, 
that there was never any competition as far as he could remember between you and your brothers. Is that true? It's true. You know, the only thing I would say that is typical of siblings, and, you know, I'll just be the first one to scream guilty here, is that, you know, I think that at some point, it's everybody wants to have their own identity. And, you know, I think that if you were to walk down the hallway between where each of us had our bedrooms, you would hear three completely different styles of music being played and listened to. And my dad has described it as being chaos, you know, walking down the hall and, and everybody's playing their different records at the same time. It's just <laughs> insane. Uh, so I think there was probably at some point, me being honest with to say, well, gosh, I want, I want to have my own identity. I remember mom dressing me and Brian alike at some point, and uh, she probably loved it, and we didn't, you know. But I, but I would say there was no unhealthy competition or anything like that ever um, between the three of us back then and to this day. So when you were setting out on this career in music, what was your vision? What did you think... I'm going to be a songwriter. I'm going to be a session player. What did you have in mind? Paul, the only thing I knew early, early, early on was that I wanted to do something in music and I didn't care what it was. And I think maybe at first play guitar like my, my father, you know, I wanted to be a guitar player, a session player, maybe. And there would be a, you know, a friend that I would go to high school with. A guy named Dan Huff, when he came to the school that I was going to, and we would, you know, get to know each other. Immediately, we headed towards each other because I, there's this guy who's moved here that's a guitar player, you know. His dad's an arranger. And so he's a second-generation music guy himself, and so immediately we hit it off, had a lot in common, and we would push each other to be better guitar players. Now, my dad offered the the influence and the access to the equipment and the guitars and everything. But this friend in high school, Dan Huff was sort of like there, there was a healthy competition. If I could use that term, you know, it pushed me to, well, I got to get serious about this because now I have a, a benchmark for where I should be at my age, you know, no, no longer just I'm Jerry Kennedy's son, but, now and and so you you can't figure using that barometer where you should be at that point in your life until you have somebody that's a peer. And so that was a good thing for me when I met Dan and and um but I think that I wanted to be a player first and then at some point the songwriting thing sort of visited my mind and I thought maybe I'll just kind of dip my toe in in it at this point. And then at some point, you know, years later that would be the thing that would start ringing my phone more than the other. So, you know, at times when people would ask you to fill out the form and occupation, there was a time when it said musician. And then there was a time where it said musician, songwriter, and then it was songwriter, musician, then songwriter, musician, producer. So when people say, what do you do? I go, whatever they let me do. That's the short answer. But it's so it sort of changed over the years. What was the first artist who recorded a Gordon Kennedy song? Well, I joined a Christian rock band in the 80s called Whiteheart. And that was the fact that I was going to be writing for a band that was already on a label and would be making records. That enabled me to get my first you know, publishing deal as a writer that had a little bit of a draw, monthly draw and all that 
you know, that made me a quote unquote professional songwriter at that point. But it was, it was this band white heart. I, I would end up writing and co-writing songs for that group for six years. And in that first six years um, that I was in that band, I also managed to get a song recorded by the same song recorded by both a country artist named Mel McDaniel and also Dan Aykroyd and Blues Brothers band did the same song. So I had a something outside the genre that my band was in. I had some activity as a songwriter and there would be, you know, a few other things um, that would happen in the contemporary Christian music world, other artists that would record my songs over the years. But I, I was always writing songs that were somewhat, you know, the ones that I would try to write specifically for the Nashville market were not my best efforts, but things that I wrote that were sort of like for every other market were seemingly my better songs. And not until that, the Clapton thing happened, did people ask to hear all of my other songs, you know, I mean, that was sort of the thing that made people go, well, what else do you have, you know? And, um, but anyway, so it would be Whiteheart was, you know, the first ever to record one of my songs. Do you think that contemporary Christian music gets the respect that it deserves? Uh, well, I think in some ways it does, even if it's not much respect, because if over the years they were, um, maybe didn't get the respect because it was always, a knockoff of some secular thing, but with a, you know, Christian lyric or something like that, you can always tell when somebody was trying to be sting or trying to be you too or whatever it is, but you just take that and, and put the, the message to it or whatever. So in some ways, if they lacked any respect, it might've been because of that, which would, you know, be a, of their own making and doing that would cause that kind of thing. But I mean, my gosh, there, there's been uh, the people that were in Whiteheart that I could name that have gone on to do things other than Christian music. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of talent in, in that genre of music over the years. Uh, I don't know it so much these days. I think that it's, in some ways, it's a business like anything else. And because of the business of the Christian music business, it's caused the music to sort of lose its appeal to me over the years. And so I don't, I don't, I'm not as up on it as I once was years ago, especially when I was obviously when I was participating in it, but I mean, it's, I, I would say, you know, there are things about it that deserve respect and then things about it that, you know, cause it to lose some too, just like anything else. As we mentioned at the top of the interview, you're one of the co-writers of the song Change the World, recorded by mm -hmm. Eric Clapton. I'm hoping you can tell us about the other two collaborators, how you came to meet Tommy Simpson and Wayne Kirkpatrick. They're actually guys that were also in contemporary Christian music, uh, like myself. Tommy was uh, a guy that auditioned for and became the bass player for Whiteheart, and he appeared on the third album that I had done with the group and he would be on that one. And then the next album, which was the last one that he and I and drummer Chris McHugh would be on from that band. But so I met Tommy through, you know, the Whiteheart group and then Wayne Kirkpatrick, 
I first became aware of him when he was out touring with contemporary Christian artist Michael W. Smith, and he had been responsible for writing and co-writing some of Michael W. Smith's biggest songs. So I knew that he was a songwriter, but he wound up playing in the band, and that's where we would cross paths out playing festivals. So I was always aware of him, and then at the point where um, a producer named Brown Bannister and Wayne Kirkpatrick together were producing an album on an artist by the name of Kim Hill and hired me to come play on it. That's when I really got to spend time with Wayne. He would subsequently call me to come and play on a record he was producing on an artist named Susan Ashton. And what started as a, can you do a gut string solo? And then, oh, can you bring your your dobro, which was my dad's dobro, to do a, a dobro part on one other song? Well, when I brought those two guitars down to do those two things he needed me to do, it was just me and him in the studio. And after that session, it was like, well, can you bring an electric guitar? And then two weeks later, we finished all the guitars for the record. We just stayed in the studio, the, the two of us, and got to know each other a little better. And then at some point, dared each other to write some songs together. And that was the, the beginning of a new and different season for me as a songwriter. He was um, somebody that that caused me to up my game. And I think he would say the same thing about working with me at the time. We sort of hit a new gear working together as writers. And, and of course, you know, the thing about writing songs is it causes you to uh, eventually get to do everything else you know how to do. So we would try to get a record deal, record in the studio. We brought Tommy Sims back in to uh, play bass on these tracks we were recording. And on the day we were recording these four songs that Wayne and I had written together, for this project, we were attempting to get a deal. Tommy just casually mentioned that he had this song idea, and it was he played, started playing the intro and uh, to change the world, and had a title, change the world. But that was all he had. Wayne would take the, that and write a chorus to it, and all but a line of a second verse. I would write his missing line in the second verse and the lyric to the first verse, and then finish the music. And then went with Tommy to demo the song in in the spring of '92. So that's, I mean, that was the the genesis of that song and kind of how we all three got to know each other. Why do you think that that song, "Change the World," has resonated with so many people? You know, I think Tommy's original thought about "Change the World" was more of a social consciousness kind of a title change the world you know maybe a i call it a hands across the studio video at some point that kind of thing but i i just specifically remember the day tommy unearthed those changes and said what you know do you think this is something this group could do and played us the the beginnings of that song i remember what went through my mind and and i sort of put it together in my mind later that at the time he began playing the intro to change the world, I remember thinking, well, this sounds enough like McCartney that I like it. And I'm sure Wayne was sitting there thinking, well, this sounds enough like James Taylor and Dan Fogelberg that I like it. And Tommy might've been thinking, well, I wonder if this sounds too much like Stevie Wonder for these guys to like, <laughs> and, you know, and the, and the thing that I, I, you know, you know, take away from that at some point is that, well, you know, all of those influences are melted together into this one thing. And, you know, we would end up hearing Stevie Wonder do that song at some point. 
So it's not just Winona and Clapton and Stevie Wonder and Babyface, and now there's been versions by T-Pain, Akon, P. Diddy, and Mary J. Blige. So maybe the fact that it was hard to pin down as a single influence and, uh, you know, style, it seems that there's a timeless uh, element to the song that it sounds like it could have been recorded in the 60s, maybe, or even the 50s. I mean, there are certain things about, even when you think about songs like When You Wish Upon a Star for the Disney movie, that have this timeless quality to it. And so I think that Change the World had something of that nature in it, you know, something a bit romantic, uh, the melodic structure of the song. And I mean, people don't realize when they're listening to the song that it's got tons of chords, but it's, it seems simpler than it actually is just because of the way it comes off. So I don't know. There, there are a lot of things going on there, but those were the, that would be how I would, you know, just try to put in a nutshell. It's timeless and seemingly, you know, you know, getting influences from a lot of music that we all grew up loving. Hmm. Wow. I wanted you to t tell us about how you came to meet Garth Brooks. <laughs> well, that would be through Brian, my brother. I mean, Brian, I mean, you know, I think Brian knew him back and was hiring him to come in and, and, and sing on demos, you know? And so, and Garth is one of those kinds of guys that, you know, if, if you believed in him, before he caught fire, then you were on his team forever. And he's kept that with his band, his studio life, where he records songs and all these things that he does is he's got this, you know, blatant, strong loyalty in his character. And so he would continue to work with and stay in touch with Brian, even after he became established as an artist. And Brian would play Garth some of those songs that I mentioned to you that I was in the studio recording with Wayne. Brian would play them for Garth. And I specifically remember being in Wayne's studio one day when Brian called me to say that about the, those first four songs that we had recorded in the studio, Garth wound up with a cassette tape of them. He said, Garth called me and wanted me to tell you that he got a speeding ticket in Arkansas listening to white flag. <laughs> and so that was one of the songs on that cassette. And so I remember thinking to myself, or I might've even said to Brian, well, I'll put that on my resume. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Garth Brooks got a speeding ticket listening to one of my songs, but you know, he would end up putting three of those four songs later on the Chris Gaines, uh, in the life of Chris Gaines project that he did. So that was where I really got to work with him. Um, I'd been in the studio with him twice before, but just for minutes while we recorded Fever, um, one of his songs. And so he just brought me in and let me play along with the guys that had been playing on his records. And then he called me one day in 1999 to say, I'm going to be in the studio doing uh, some overdubs and I'm going to put you with this guy that that's just moved here from Australia and you know, got there and just me and Keith Urban were there to play guitars that day. And so that was another time where I spent some time with him in the studio, but I mean, dang it, he's on the other side of the glass. I'm not really getting to know who he is, what he's all about until we do that Chris Gaines project. And then, of course, we were with him for several weeks and then went flying with him to do, I don't know, 12 to 15 TV tapings and shows, uh, showcases around the country. That's when I really got to know him and found out the guy that he is and, and 
the guy that I just, you know, so much, uh, have so much respect and love for to this day. I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about the Chris Gaines album. You wrote uh-huh. and co-wrote so many of those songs. Right. It's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, like I said, the day that he called me in to work with Keith Urban, we played on a song together. And then as I was leaving, Garth tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, he said, I need you to bring me some songs. He said, going to be working on this movie. It's called The Lamb. It's about an artist whose record label has him, you know, when I think some at some point in his career, his career sort of peaked and maybe on the down downward angle. And his record label realizes that this guy may be worth more dead than alive and conspired to have him killed. I mean, he's telling me all this stuff in the studio. And I'm going, oh, my gosh. I said, so you need some country songs? He goes, oh, no. He said, I need the Beatles, Eagles stuff that you are good at. So by that afternoon, I had two songs on hold for that project because I went straight to the publishing company where I was writing at the time and sent over a CD. And as he was listening to the, the songs, he would call and put them on hold. And I think it was either two or three songs that day, by the end of that day. And then, of course, what would happen would be he would end up diving into mine, Wayne Kirkpatrick, and Tommy Sims's catalogs and doing the whole record from that. So, you know, 10 of those songs were songs I wrote and co-wrote and a bunch of them with Wayne and Tommy, which, you know, the funny thing about the three of us as writers, we had written Change the World together, and that was the only song we had written together. And then after it blew up with the Grammys and Clapton and all this stuff, you know, we looked at each other and said, well, gosh, do you think we should write another song together? (laughs) And we ended up writing a total of 11 tunes together as a trio, and nine of them were recorded. And so I, even to this day, say three dumbest guys in Nashville are the three of us not writing any more songs together because everybody's so busy and Tommy's now living in Florida. And so, but I mean, with that's so, yeah, the Chris Gaines thing, you know, started in for me that day in the studio I was leaving after playing on a, a song with Keith and he just kind of gave me the heads up of what was going on and unfortunately the the world his fan base or especially the press never caught on to the idea and just destroyed him over how dare he want to you know do something like that you know it, it worked for David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust but it wasn't going to work for Garth Brooks and Chris Gaines hmm I've always said about the record, though, Paul, that people that heard it really liked it. Everybody else hated it. A good way to describe that project. (laughs) Well, I did hear the album. I have the album, and I think it's great. Well, he showed another side of him, which is, hello, talent. The guy's got talent, you know. And I was as skeptical as anybody the day he said, want to uh, start with Lost in You? And Wayne and I went to the studio, just me and him and Garth, and I, I remember Wayne and I looking at each other going, like, this, how can this work? He's going <laughs> to sing this, you know, sound, it sounds like Philip Bailey, Tommy singing the demo, and how's this going to work? And then, man, he started singing. And I looked at Wayne and I said, okay, who's the real Garth? You know, is it the country guy or is it this guy? Because he's, he's nailing it, you know. <laughs> so he just showed another side of him that's, that's, uh, that blew us away. And, and you know, but the, like I said, the people just weren't ready to for them to mess with the box they had him in. You know. Well, speaking of versatile artists, one of my favorites would have to be Peter Frampton. Oh yeah, 
Tell us about Peter Frampton and working with him. You know, it's still surreal to me that I sit beside that guy anytime I do, especially when we do the two-man acoustic shows. Just and I'm sitting there playing guitar beside that guy because I, you know, the thing that I go back to in my mind is being a sophomore in high school when the live album came out, and that was the first time me and my friends were aware of who Peter Frampton is. We didn't know, I didn't know the name until that live album came out. And then, my gosh, it exploded. I think it sold 17 million copies or something. And, you know, me and, me and a friend of mine, uh, for that entire school year, every time we passed each other in the hallways, and I'm not kidding, this is no lie, for the, for the whole school year, we would say to each other, Thank you. And we were imitating Peter at the end of all the songs we were hearing on that album. He would always say that. And then in 1999, I would, uh, because of a guy named Bobby Reimer, who was working at Alamo Irving Publishing Company, and that's where Peter wrote, through the L.A. office, but they have a national office. And uh, and my brother Shelby were having lunch one day and said, we got to get these two guys together, because I was, you know, what they had to do to make this happen, I'm sure, in retrospect, was they went to Peter Frampton, told him my whole life story, and that he wrote the, you know, co-wrote the song "Change the World" for Eric Clapton, which was a song of the year. He's the son of Jerry Kennedy, and tells him his whole life story, and all this to get Peter Frampton to go. Well, yeah, okay, that sounds good. And of course, they come to me and go, "Do you want to work with Peter Frampton?" Yes, you know. So <laughs> they put the two of us together. Uh, we got together to start writing, and that's been 19 years now that we've been writing together. I'm so fortunate that he continues to call me when it's time to go to work in that capacity, writing songs, making records, touring. Uh, and when it came time to do a, an acoustic show, it was, you want to go, you know? And so I've been, you know, I've done four legs of those tours with him now, which is a phenomenal experience because people, even though they've seen him for decades, have never seen him sit in a chair, tell stories and play these songs the way they sounded the day he wrote them. You know, if you think about it, that's what you're getting at a show like that is imagine him walking up to you and going, hey, I just wrote this song. What do you think? And then outpours, baby, I love your way, which he wrote the same afternoon of the morning. He wrote, show me the way and all in the same day. So he's telling these stories and it's such a, a great treat for the for the audience, you know, to go somewhere with him that he's never been able to take an audience before get to hear this it's just a real special and intimate experience and so you know i've just uh I, again he is probably one of the best guitar players i've ever heard in my life and you know back in the 70s this was kind of lost on the audience because of the image the shirt unbuttoned to the belt you know the fair faucet hair all this stuff that was part of his image they were capitalizing on and putting him on the covers of magazines and and all this stuff, and 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 all honesty, he just wanted to be a guitar player. And so David Bowie realized this in the '80s and called him to come play on an album. And they were school buddies. I don't know if you know that or not. He tells this story in the in the acoustic show, but I mean, he went to school, art school, uh, with David Bowie. Peter Frampton's father, Owen Frampton, had was teaching art at this school, and and David Jones was his name, Dave Jones. Bowie was one of the students and uh, George Underwood was another student. 
he ended up doing the artwork for Ziggy Stardust. But anyway, all the, so Bowie was the guy that brought Frampton back into the public eye as the guitar player on the Glass Spider tour. And so his, uh, he recovered all any respect that he had lost and became, you know, the Peter Frampton that we know and love. And when I met him, he was just sort of starting to hit the gas pedal again and, and go out and touring lots of shows and, and so I stepped into the picture as a writer and then would ultimately get called to come in and play when his keyboard player of many years, Bob Mayo, passed away. So here I was off and running, playing live dates with him and, and continuing to write, make records with him, and culminating, like I said, in most recent few years doing these acoustic shows with him. And we've just started writing for a new record earlier this year and have two songs on our way to that. So anyway... Just like I said, one of the greatest guitar players I've ever heard in my life. He would, I would say he would be in the top three favorite guitar players for me of all time. Up there with Jerry Reed and Jeff Beck, who I just think, you know, who can touch what these guys do? There's just something about his playing. And of course, when I asked him who his influence was, it's different from some of the other English guitar heroes that I love so much. And, and that while they might cite the Mississippi Delta Blues players from the United States. He was a big fan of Django Reinhardt, Gypsy Jazz, and I think that's what sets his playing apart. He's, he's a dear friend and so talented, and I'm just honored to be a part of his music-making life. Well, speaking of instrumental guitar players like Django, it yeah. brings to mind that Fingerprints album. Yeah. What did you think of that? Well, I mean, it was, you know, at some point we were in the middle of working on tunes together and I think we wrote a couple of little ideas that would end up being on the the album that was to follow that, which was the thing we did for the Cincinnati Ballet called Hummingbird in a Box. But we wound up saying, I think we're writing instrumentals here and let's do an instrumental record. And, you know, that's what got him his first and only Grammy. Again, it was fitting that that particular record would get him his first Grammy because he's just the guitar player again. And, you know, it's great to me that he won for being a musician after, you know, uh, all the stuff that happened to him in the late seventies and, and everything else. It's sort of like if you, you know, the best way to describe it earlier in his career in the seventies going into the eighties is that he was spending time trying to recover from his success, you know, well, and then all these years later, he went to Grammy for being the guitar player once again, which is phenomenal, I think. But yeah, that's, that album is, it's just, I mean, he sort of sets a, a bar up there where very few can go to me as a guitar player because he's got chops and can do all this technical stuff. But I mean, his sense of melodies and phrases and phrasing and, and all that stuff is sort of unparalleled to me. This might be a difficult question, but of all of the artists who have recorded a Gordon Kennedy song, could you pick a favorite interpretation? Well, I can give you one that surprised me because, I mean, and again, I'm not picking a favorite because there are every, I mean, there's so many artists that have recorded songs but the one that surprised me the most where i thought i could not have imagined that 
was Alison Krauss when she did the song Maybe. I just wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready for hearing something that I never dreamed would be so beautiful the way she did that song. It's It was so uh, far and beyond that you forget that you wrote it. You know, you think it's coming from somewhere else because she took it to this place. Because, I mean, our, our demo of the song maybe sounds like, as my publisher, Doug Howard, said, described it. He said, it sounds like the song they forgot to put on Abbey Road. Well, when she does, just, I'm, a, I'm telling you, it's from some other world, you know. So that would be one of my favorite interpretations of, of a song that I co-wrote. And that was one I wrote with Phil Madeira. You know, all of the stuff that Ricky Skaggs has done on the Mosaic record, from a, just a, the standpoint of an entire project, it's something that I listen to and chokes me up when I listen to it these days because I can't believe that, you know, for, there were so many years when I dreamed of, I would love to have Ricky Skaggs record one of my songs and then to have him do a song with Bruce Hornsby that led to this, him doing an entire album of, of songs of mine and uh, other co-writers that, you know, that one blows me away. And then of course, Again, like I said, I had these, you know, I told Peter Frampton one day, I said, I'm going to turn around at some point when I leave this world, the autopsy report on me is going to say pinch marks because this guy pinched himself to death because he couldn't believe this was happening to him. You know, there, there are those kinds of moments where, you know, that and, and the fact that Garth Brooks will even show up to do the little homecoming show I do at Belmont because, and I'm afraid to ask him to do anything, not because I'm afraid he'll say no, but I'm afraid he'll say yes. Hmm. And he said, yes, he would come and do this, this show for me. And, you know, and when I saw him at, uh, on stage at Bridgestone arena here in Nashville, back in December of 23rd, December 23rd, and him do some verse and chorus of you move me, you know, in front of that audience, that's one of those things too, where you can't dial this up. You can't imagine it that you would experience something like this for him to be holding an audience in the palm of his hand and seeing signs that, you know, or requests. And he, he's often told me that's the most requested song on a sign that he says, which he may just be saying that to make me feel good. I don't know. But for him to do that with that audience there, those are, you know, that one moment, it's like you cannot put a price tag and a, you can't even describe it, what it is. So there, I can't do just one, but uh, there's plenty, 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 plenty. Do you write much with your brothers? No. In fact, uh, we used to have a little band called Chuck Wagon and the Wheels that we, we unearthed in the basement of our home back when we were all late high school, early college years and when the vcr camcorders first came out and all the world was rushing to shoot weddings and births and you know all these different things that make sense we took the camera to the basement and created a fictitious it was basically us doing our own version of lester roadhog moran and the cadillac cowboys and we pretended we had a tv show and would put these things on on uh the VCR tape just to entertain our families. And then we'd go back to our high schools and do, I think six years in a row, we went back and played once a year there. And it became this local cult thing that we would even play the Bluebird Cafe when it was 
opening in the early years before it became just a songwriter's venue. We would go there and play shows. And so we, we all dabbled in creating things together back in those days. And then at some point, everybody would again go to their different, now it's not bedrooms, but different worlds that they're trying to, you know, make ground headway in. And um, mine went with Whiteheart and Brian's went with Garth. And, and you know, Shelby, even though he's written a couple of big songs, you know, one was uh, Ray Charles, James Hickey, Who Cares, duet for that record. You know, he's always been more on the business side of things. And and so it just, you know, life takes you in different directions. I mean, like I said earlier, I can't even get with Tommy and Wayne anymore because of schedules. And Wayne's into the Broadway musical world these days. You have the Something Rotten, which was written for Broadway. And, and so it's hard to, although we did write a thing a couple of years ago, we got together and wrote, and it's Bonnie Raitt's most recent single called Gypsy and Me. So two of the three of us got together and, you know, it's just hit me in the last few days that, that, you know, I would like to write more, um, you know, do some family writing like that, but we'll see if, if we can make that happen. You know, Brian, like I say, he lives in Florida now. And, and so it's a little bit tougher to do. And then these days it's, you have to find the reason for what you're doing has to make sense on more on some other level other than, Let's just write songs to pitch because those days are sort of gone. But I, I think that that's something that could still happen. I mean, at some point, we'll just be old men doing it for fun, you know. <laughs> yeah. And who's going to be? Who's going to want to do it with you then? Your brother, you know. <laughs> yeah. What is the best thing about being Gordon Kennedy? Well, <laughs> uh, I've never been asked that question before. I mean. You know, I I will say that if I have anything going for me, it's that I, and I'll quote a, a coach, Jimmy Gentry, who, 92 years old, World War II veteran, and uh, in the troops that liberated Dachau concentration camp. He came to Brentwood Academy to be one of our football coaches my senior year there, so I had him as a he was on the coaching staff my last year there, but we've we stayed in touch over the years. And and our, me and my brothers go and play little hoot nannies in his barn or his farm once a year. And he says this: He says, "Know where you belong, work hard, and when something needs to be done, God will know where to find you." And to me, that means know what you're good at, what your gifts are, but you got to work hard at it because you can't just sit there and go, I'm good at this and wait for the phone to ring. You have to work hard. And then when something needs to be done in what, in the field, you know, in which you are excelling or good at where your gifts fly, you don't have to be moved very far to answer the bell for that. Right. So the thing that is that I would say to answer your question is, is that I'm comfortable in my skin because of, that statement that Jimmy Gentry made. I know what the calling on my life is. I know that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And I feel like God shows me over and over again that it is a calling on my life. And I've seen where he has equipped me to answer that over the years. So if you put that side by side with the fact that I married the most wonderful woman in the world, I can't 
put into words how fortunate I feel that I found. And it's, it's not lost on me that her name was Jewel when I met her, Tracy Jewel. And my uncle Glenn said, you waited till you found a Jewel before you got married. And I did. And, and then we had two wonderful children. And then of course, you know, I get to sit and have Mr. Jerry Kennedy tell me stories and I'm recording him much like you're doing uh, with people. I've been doing that with him lately, getting his story. Uh, I've been recording it. So just to sit there and listen to and to know how far our family uh, and to trace it back to certain things and, and people, events and things that have happened in our family over the years that make me realize that this is all part of a great plan. And the fact that I have been placed on the path that I that I'm on, I just feel blessed, you know. So that's the best thing about being me. It's just that it's just knowing, you know. I don't have any questions about it necessarily. I, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm I just feel very blessed. You were saying that you feel comfortable in who you are. So, right. who would you say that you are? Who is Gordon Kennedy? Well, another good question. I mean, because, you know, people don't, they, they, they want you to put your occupation, <laughs> you know, or they want you to give your medical history or something, you know, and that's who you are and you're sitting in the waiting room or whatever. But, I mean, I, I would have to, I could probably formulate it better if I sat and thought about it, like as if I were writing a song. But since I don't have, I can't, I'm not afforded that opportunity. I, you know, I just feel like I am part of God's creation. Um, I'm some, I'm somebody that, that was in God's heart before I had a beating heart myself. And so I feel like I'm somebody that is placed into this world, in this life with a purpose and do my best every day to seek what that is and keep going when I fail and give thanks to God when I, when I don't. You know, I think that that's the simple answer. What would you say to our listeners? Totally open-ended. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I'm going to get to go. I'm going to get to go speak to uh, the Nashville Art Institute. I'm going to be the speaker at their commencement exercise here pretty soon. And I also just spent some time uh, in the last few years doing the convocation at the beginning of Belmont University's school years with Ricky Skaggs and we get to play music for the students and talk to the students. This past time it hit me about, and it's a little bit about what I've just been saying to you in the last few minutes about if you ever heard the phrase, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And so this will tie up what I've been saying here in the last few minutes. You know, the day I was playing in front of the Belmont students, I, I said, have you ever heard that phrase before? I said, you know, for me, it's a calling on my life. You know, God didn't look in a book this morning and say, I need somebody with a Martin guitar that has an LR bags preamp on it. You know, it's like, it's the other way around to me. It's like a calling that's been on my life. And I, like I said, I can go back to even a, you know, a, a great, great, great grandfather, Joseph Willis, who was, you know, known as the barefoot preacher. He was born in 18, I think 
uh, oh no, sorry, 1758 in the Carolinas. He ended up fighting with the Swamp Fox in the War of 1812 in the Carolinas. That's who Mel Gibson plays in the Patriot movie, by the way, the Swamp Fox. But he ended up moving from Carolina after becoming a Baptist minister and being chased out of the Carolinas on a wagon, didn't put his shoes on the wagon. He took, he just jumped in the wagon and fled, stopped in Louisiana, built the first ever Baptist church west of the Mississippi in the United States and got off the wagon and said, I can't run from what God wants me to do. So he, he established himself there. There's a statue of him down there now. But I mean, that's who, this is somebody that's in my family, you know. Well, I mean, years and years, decades and decades later, you know, I'm playing in a contemporary Christian rock band, you know. And I have to think that, you know, some of what was going on in the 1700s might have something to do with what I was doing in the 1980s. I mean, it's just just, even the fact that my dad, I don't know if he told you this or not, but my father's father passed away when my father was only nine years old. And I'm named after Gordon Kennedy, who's a deputy sheriff there. And he took my dad to get his first guitar lesson three days before he died. And so you don't think that was something Mm. critical to what's happening with me now? So I know I, I go back, I can go back to those years and I can go back to the 1700s and tell you God is he is has a plan and things move and he can use every decision that we make to keep his plan going. It, I mean, we can, we can't mess it up in other words, but or we can, but we, I can see over my shoulder, the history of my life and, and the people that were here before me, how it made sense that at some point I would end up with a guitar in my hands, you know, and then it would make sense that I would want to play, this kind of music, the kind of music that I that I enjoy playing and, and be driven to write and be a part of, you know, a message sharing with uh, with an audience. But all this to say, I'm looking at the audience at Belmont going, this has been a calling on my life. And I, I would say to them, and, you know, one of the ways I know that it is a calling, and I paused and I said, well, because I get called all the time. That's <laughs> one, one way I know. I, and I, I chuckled just like you did. I said, yeah, I I get called all the time. But I said, you know what my answer is? Yes. Hmm. Whatever it is they're calling me, asking me to do, I say yes. And so, you know, you know, and again, that's my my prayer, if you will, is that, hey, if you want me to keep doing this, then, you know, provide or or equip me so that I can continue to answer yes. And so far, that's what's happened with my life. So. I say that to encourage people that um, if you if you seriously know what your calling is and you avail yourself to say yes every time you get called, because I mean, at what point at the point where I go, well, that gig is beneath me or that thing doesn't pay enough. Then at some point, I think I might be being separated from what it is I'm supposed to be doing and maybe they'll stop calling. Who knows? I, I don't know. I just know I feel driven to to um, say yes and and to to think, you know, and, and to think in terms of why have I been given these gifts, if not to answer the call, you know. So it's, 
it's a, it's just something that I say to encourage people, you know, figure out what that is in your life. Well, Gordon, thank you very much for spending the time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure, Paul. I, I appreciate you and reaching out to my family. That's, that's very nice of you to do that and to help tell that story. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Until next time, thank you, Gordon. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.